Hello, welcome to the Word on the Hill with the Lanky Guys. My name is Father Peter. Musset. My name is Scott Powell. I don't know why I felt necessary to say your last name. I, it was funny because I it always just sounded Father, so incomplete. I always say Father Peter Musset, and I decided to say just my first name because I wanted to see how it sounded. Actually, what what if you just anonymized me? I couldn't. I couldn't do it. Did you hear? Yeah. I literally. I am not it. anonymous. I um. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> and neither are you, anonymous doctor. Neither am I. I think uh, I'm just going to start referring to you as doctor. Like, no, you're not. Hi, doctor. That's one of those things you say, but you're never going to follow through I'm on. I'm never going to follow through on that. It's it's unnecessary. <laughs> well, um, friends, uh, we really appreciate you going joining in with us. And um, there are so many of you who have uh, gived us, gived us, have given us really great well wishes mm-hmm. and thoughts and prayers. It's a little bit of a wild time here in Boulder and uh, yeah. with... Uh, with uh, the the shooting that took place, and so we really appreciate your prayers and your thoughts, and um, and um, and you just have to know all of us are okay, and the um, and uh, you know the people are a little rattled. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just it just struck struck at the heart of our community. Yeah, these are they're dark days, and for those of you who don't know us, it, it, the the grocery store where the shooting happened, it, it really is right up the road from us. That's that's where a um, lot of people shop from. Yeah, here. that's our that's our closest kind of major grocery store. So it's it's definitely, um, yeah, it's definitely these are our neighbors. These are this is our community, and it's uh, it, it's uh, it sounds so cliche because stuff like this happens so frequently. It's easy to get desensitized, and it sounds so cliche to be like, well. I never, you know, it never could happen in my neighborhood. It never could have. I've always been of the belief that it's absolutely good. I mean, you know, I kind of operate at all times on worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah. So I've I've always sort of been waiting, you know, is it going to happen here? When is it going to happen here? And it's just so jarring. It's just, there's just such a darkness that's hanging over the city right now. And it's... Um, a darkness, but this is the, this is the wild part though, is that... Evil never wins, and the amount of light that is poured out and love and intention. Yeah. Like, I've gotten so many text messages and yeah. phone calls, and like yeah. all of us here have. Like, yeah. everybody's checking in on us. I'm, I'm like true. reconnecting with like old, old friends uh, and, and people who I've lost contact with who just like break through whatever relational stuff is there. They just yeah. say, you know what? Hey, I'm thinking about you. I love you. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your community. And so it's one of those things that I'm actually really, I'm really impressed with, yeah. with like, in the darkest moments, sometimes the greatest amount of love is poured out. And so there, yeah. it's a dark moment, but there's a tremendous amount of love. Yeah. No, there is. There is. Um, and it's been it's been beautiful hearing, slowly starting to hear about some of the really great stories coming out of this. Like the the young barista who buried his, you know, older coworker in trash cans so they were hidden when the shooter was passing by. And like just the little acts of heroism that are starting to come out of like no, there's there's real there's real power. There's real love. There's real self gift that you know that, that starts to show up, and, and right. those are the stories that are important to focus on rather than you know the evil that happened is where where is the heroism? Where is the self gift? The cop of the father of seven, father uh, uh, <laughs> officer Eric Talley, you know the devout Catholic who was the first one on the scene, rushed in, gave of himself, and lost his life. But the heroism of you know. To, to not allow the evil to take over the narrative of self-gift. Right. That Which is, not to make too awkward a transition, but that is the message of Passion Week, isn't it? This is it. The consciousness of not allowing the evil to take over the self-gift that actually defines the Christian story. Right. Which is where, where we are. Right, and that's that, that's actually the expression that we... And and as as catholics we we spend time thinking about this yeah. this is actually a part of our this is a part of our life and this is it's one of those things i'm actually sometime early on in my life there was a, a somebody who said all the all the great saints spent a lot of time meditating on the lord's passion and like i feel like i kind of do that all year round i'm ca- i'm kind of always yeah. i'm ca- kind of always in the lord's passion i always pray like lord where am i in your passion when i'm really yeah. suffering i ask him to to gps locate me <laughs> so that i so that i can remember that he's like walking beside me it's like it's like it's an eternal moment that's so powerful and profound i know that this is this is how i relate to jesus no, I'm just reminded of the. Uh, remember that Saturday Night Live skit from the Christmas Mass a few years ago. Oh, the, 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 the softest Christmas joke and the softest <laughs> laugh. Like, uh-huh. and the wise men didn't even have GPS. 
or <laughs> MapQuest. I think it was MapQuest. Map <laughs> <laughs> right. And like, yeah. oh, dude, that that just sa- that, that Saturday Night Live, like, hit it. Do you know that there's like when I sing, I'm like, and the Lord of like, like the way that he sings in there, they like nailed it in the like so much so that like I check myself in how I sing. It's amazing. Like they they framed they framed an experience for me. I totally stole our thunder. I totally stole your thunder just now. Sorry about that. <laughs> Let's GPS our, Let's map quest ourselves back into the narrative of Jesus's passion. Jesus's passion. <laughs> right. That's why you you know turn here. That you just see Jesus just did it for you. Right. Yeah, that's true. No, I I just am always saying like. You know, the truth of, of Jesus's passion is that he accompanies absolutely every single person in an immediate capacity and every single suffering that they are enduring yeah. in the moments of his passion to let us know that he defeats it all and he wins. He yeah. freaking wins. Yeah, even though it doesn't seem like a win. No, and it's it's real. It's still, you still have to go through everything. Yeah. Like, that's the, that's the, the wonder of the passion. I wonder, like, when I say wonder, it's not like, like, wonder I years. Wonder. <laughs> <laughs> or a wonder who, but who, 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 who wrote the book of love. But like, I, no, like, like, I wonder, like, Good heavens. I just, where's this happening? I, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's true. You wonder, um, who, 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 okay, who, 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 Lord, you still want us to go through things even though you are victorious. You still have to go through knowing that victory is going to come. Well, and part of the problem that I always, part of the problem with with Christianity, if I can be so bold. (laughs) Wow. um, And it's true, and it's a good problem, but it's the one that the Lord gave us, which is, and why what you said is it makes sense that we have to suffer these. Part of why we have to do that, number one, because we imitate Jesus and he showed us how to and gives us the grace to do it, of course. But also the victory that we're talking about is not is not the kind of victory that would satisfy, you know, the end of a Marvel movie or something like that. You know what I mean? It's not a it's not a comic book ending. It's a he defeated death by death. He conquered the grave and he conquered sin and he rose from the dead, victorious over all of his enemies, over all that wanted to kill him and persecute him and put him to death. He rose, he was victorious. And the end of a normal movie, an action movie or something, would be him going and glorifying himself and showing everybody and sticking it to the enemies. But he doesn't do any of that. He appears to a very small handful of mainly not credible, according to society people, and says, I'm going to show you, and I'm going to show no one else, and I'm going to vanish out of your sight. And your job, oh, ye who are not credible in the world, is to go and tell the rest of the world that this victory actually did happen, even though none of you really saw it. And so your lives will need to be the witness of the victory, because it's not going to be the big lightning bolt coming out of the sky. It's not going to be the gigantic, you know, huge, victorious moment of... of uh, of vindication, you know, where the the credits start to roll on the screen. It's your lives through your suffering are to be witness to what has actually taken place. Yes. And that's hard to me. Yes. Because it's it's a less satisfying, at least in this earthly sense, ending of the story. Right. Because it means we have to embody it. Which is, I don't know, maybe a good frame in which to to kind of head into this series of readings. Yeah, well, it's just... It's wild because you have to, at the core, judge for yourself what the experience of this really is. Yep. Does, does, do, you know, wouldn't this be miraculous and powerful if Jesus Christ suffered, died, and rose again, and that mattered, and that those witnesses were able to actually convey something that transformed something inside of you? And that's actually part of that's part of why we go through this. We don't we don't skip over it and just say, okay, look, you know what? It's all hunky dory. It's like right. we go through this and we ask ourselves, like, <laughs> excuse me, does this um, does this actually, does this does this resonate or not? Yeah. Is, is there something real in this? And and that's where, where. I keep on I keep on asking this question, and this is the string that goes through all of these readings for me. Wow. Is this idea of discipleship? Okay. What does it actually mean to be a disciple? And be, because we have a we have a huge movement within the Archdiocese of Denver of asking this question of discipleship. 
Is there clear paths for discipleship within the parishes that we run? Are there clear paths for people to be able to engage and to go deeper and to follow and to walk after the Lord? And so as I'm looking at all of these readings, I'm saying, well, what does a, what does a disciple look like in the face of great and tremendous suffering? Mm. What does a disciple look like in the, in the face of, uh, of the other? And and um, and so so we start off um, I'm outside and asking yeah. this question: How do we enter into these these passions? Well, and and from the get go, we get a great example of the seeming absurdity sometimes of discipleship. Actually, we should say the readings before we do this. Oh, all right. Uh, so our <laughs> procession with the palms um, is Mark eleven one through ten. That's a lot of the number one. So there's one 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 zero. Right. It's kind of binary. If you if you guys know binary, you can tell us what oh, that means. Oh, I know what binary is. I code things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I code the podcast. Um, our first reading at the Mass, as it's called, is from Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 7. Then our responsorial psalm is Psalm 22, 8 to 9, 17 to 18, 19 to 20, 23 to 24, with the response coming from 2A. Or not 2A. Uh, our second reading is from... It just from... depends on if you're Canadian. Yeah. Our second reading, I love the Canadians. Our second reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through <clears throat> six through 11. <laughs> <laughs> Our gospel is the longer form. Mark 14, 1 to 15, 47, a full two chapters. The longer form. Yeah, I'll say it. <laughs> the longest. <laughs> Wait, is Dude, there another option? There's a short form. I don't see a short form. You know what the short form is? The short form is... Philippians 2, 8 through 9. Mark 15, 1 through 39. <laughs> what a... So you just skipped chapter 14. Yeah, you can't skip chapter 14. So this is why, this is, you said something that um, made me think of something, and I don't remember what you said that made me think of this. <laughs> so, <laughs> but something sparked it in me as far as, um, and it wasn't directly with discipleship, but you it led to your statement about discipleship being running through this. There's sort of a, a cliche, it's not a bad cliche, but a cliche that says, you know, we, I shouldn't use the word cliche, but you talked about how, you know, sometimes it's tempting and a lot of our other Christian brothers and sisters want to jump over to the skip, passion yeah. and just go straight to the resurrection because that's the good stuff. And so there's, there's a saying that we often hear that you can't have Easter Sunday without Good Friday. But I would further that and say you can't have Good Friday without Palm Sunday. And you can't, so if you can't have Easter Sunday without Good Friday, Good Friday doesn't make sense without the week that leads up to it, which is what we as a church say is crucially important right now. This is why Palm Sunday is a big deal for us, because it matters how this came about. Part of um, the entire pedagogy of the whole of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is asking the question, how did we get here? Well, I, I'm t I was teaching a class yesterday on um, First and Second Kings, which is the story of Israel going into exile. And I was telling my students that First and Second Kings and Chronicles, for that matter, were all compiled. The stories came prior to that, but they were compiled post-exile, after Jerusalem had fell, after the temple was destroyed, and they were starting to rebuild their lives. And they were asking the question, how did we get here? How did this happen? What happened to get to this incredibly dark place? And it's telling the story so that we understand where we have come from, what our narrative is, what sins not to fall into, what heroes to follow, what evil to not follow, so that we can make sense out of our world. Right. And as, as Christians, I, as Catholics, I love that the church, before we get to the Triduum, says, no, before we even deal with that, we have to get into the narrative. And so we spend this particular Sunday... And I mean, this is one of the most memorable Sundays for most Catholics because it's the Sunday where you stand the longest. And we stand the longest because the church is desperately trying to get our attention and saying, you have to understand this story if any of the rest of it is going to make sense. And you have to be like what you said, find ourselves, GPS yourself into the story so that you enter into the narrative, which is why it's the only time in the entire liturgical year where the congregants actually have a role in reading the gospel. Right. We actually are meant to enter in because our voice has to be here. It has to be included in this because we have to find ourselves in the story. We're not passive um, observants. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I don't know. I think it's beautiful that the church makes us do this, asks us to do this, makes us do this. Yeah. So we start, we, like you said, we start outside of town. And if you, if you, 
God is thinking about the idea of discipleship. What is a disciple? A disciple is nothing more than the follower of a teacher. So even outside of Christianity, all it means to be a disciple is to follow a teacher. And what makes Christian discipleship so particularly difficult is that if a disciple is simply one who follows a teacher, the teacher that we happen to follow is a little bit crazy and leads us to all sorts of wacky places. And he's really hard to keep up with a lot of times. Either he's really fast or he goes in really strange directions or he takes really weird twists and turns that the GPS has a hard time following. <laughs> and and it's why I've always had a hard time with the idea of of finding some programmatic way or easy like outline bullet pointed way to talk about Christian discipleship. Because what Christian discipleship is simply following a teacher who sometimes leads us to wacko places. And that's a great, that's actually where we start because the apostles are outside of town. They're on their way in to Palm, to, uh, to Jerusalem, not for Palm Sunday, but for the Pas- uh, for the Passover feast, which they're required by law to go up every year to do. And on their way there in the closest suburbs out of town. So basically the equivalent of superior, they're in superior, right? On their way into town. And while they're stopping there, he's like, all right. I want you to go into this village, into Superior, and I want you to find a donkey and a colt, these two animals, and I just want you to take them. Just get them and bring them to me. And they're like, I I would have loved to hear their response. Like, don't, aren't those somebody's animals? Like, do you just want us to steal them? But, But this is where we enter into the weirdness of discipleship. Sometimes God asks us, sometimes Jesus in our following of him asks us to do things that sound outlandish because they're meant to lead us to something far greater. Right. So he's like, no, trust me. And I actually think the disciples are quite excited because it's one of the first really kingly royal acts that Jesus does, which is that the kings have a a royal mandate to conscript someone's animals if they need to use them for royal business. And I bet the apostles are like, Wait, you're getting an animal? You want us to go steal somebody's donkey? Bring it on! Now it's time. You're going to do something. Mm. Because to ride an animal into the holy city of Jerusalem on a pilgrim feast where people are are mandated to walk, that's a big statement. And they're like, oh, okay. Something's going to happen. Something's up. Let's go get him. Right, and they're they've seen all the works they've done. They they've actually right. lived the life of discipleship, knowing that like some weird stuff goes down, and they've right. they've seen the temple get shut down. They've seen the. I mean, not yet. Well, probably. I mean, yeah, we talked you, about that last week. Yeah, it's probably happened twice. Yeah. So so like they, they've seen they've yeah. seen G- Jesus who is um who is not only going to do things you don't understand, but they've also gone through him actually explaining the parables yeah. of like bringing them into the house and telling them his heart. They, they like yeah. they, they hear consistently. They've seen him change in shape. They've like, or like a sh- change in illum- luminosity. They've seen him glow. They've seen him cast out demons. They've is that a word? Him- luminosity? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. They, like, like they, yeah. they've, they've seen him take up the old Testament stories. They've heard voices from heaven. They've seen doves. They've seen like prison. I mean, like this stuff is like, this has been blowing up for years and they've been camping and they've been going and, and like hearing declarations, they've been getting slammed and lifted up. And like, this is, this is like the fullness of their experience. They've learned to trust. And simultaneously they've watched everybody not get it. Everybody walk away. All of the crowds disperse as soon as something gets hard or another miracle worker does something better, right? They've they, had to look inside themselves and ask the same question. Absolutely. Are, am I going to Are bail? we going to take off too? So now the sense that I get is that they're thinking, now everyone will get to see what we have seen. We have seen it. We've, we've bought in. We are sold out. We have made the decision. Where else will we go? Now he's taking an animal. He's taking the royal symbol of the king. He's going to ride it in. Now is finally the time for the victory. Now is the time for his glorification. Now will everybody see what we have already seen. And we know where the story ends, at least temporarily. And we see how expectations are sometimes dashed. For the sake of something far greater than we ever expected. But I'm just, I'm really struck by it, by what it must have been like for them at this moment. That moment of anticipation before something really huge is about to happen. And you don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but you have a sense of what you want it to look like and what right. it might look like. And you're like, okay, this is it, man. So and then, I, I actually think that we need Isaiah to understand this. Okay. No, so just, so Bring check it. this out. 
what what happens is the crowds get totally rocked. They see him coming in and like because everybody's on foot and they got Donkey Man over here, you know, like and they're they're like, whoa, I'm so uncomfortable. <laughs> I know me too. I don't know why, but the, the other day I was like actually trying to talk about the Garden of Gethsemane and um and the Mount of Olives and all I could come up with was Olive Garden. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to preach and I was like Olive Garden like and like it flustered me so badly because I could not get past it. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. <laughs> it's just not right. It's just a lot less free bread. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a, a garlic <sighs> knot. So here we are. <clears throat> So the Lord has given me a well-trained tongue that I may know how to speak to the weary word that will rouse them. Oh, by the way, oh, sorry, go for it. I'll come back to it. Yeah. Is that, is that, is that what I'm saying is that Jesus, sometimes we have a limited idea of what a word is. Absolutely. This is exactly where I wanted to go with this. Right. He's speaking a word by getting on the donkey and riding into town and it rouses everybody. I think we can theologically take it a step further than that. Talk to me. Because that was my first thought, too. And I was I was thinking of this in, in uh, well, in conjunction with the gospel. And the first, it, it's not a first reading. It's, what, what, how do we call this first one? Just the reading at the, the procession? Yeah, yeah, that's all it's called. Mass, yeah. um, so this is obviously one of the, I think this is the third of the servant songs of Isaiah. So these prophecies about this individual who embodies the nation of Israel, who will suffer profoundly, but then be vindicated, which is the entire narrative that we've been talking about. But um, yeah, the Lord has given me a well-trained tongue that I might know how to speak to the weary. We also can't underestimate how weary the nation of Israel is at this point, how weary they are from having suffered oppression and getting beat up and loss of land and loss of kingship and loss of blessing and waiting and longing and wondering when will God... The, the understanding for the people of Israel, the people of Judah, the people in Jerusalem, is that God has abandoned them. Why? Because everybody knows that the tabernacle inside the temple is empty. It's vacant. The presence of God, the Shekinah, the glory cloud, departed in the times of Ezekiel. They saw God take off when the first temple was destroyed. When the first prophet who says these words, you have made my temple into a den of robbers and thieves, God leaves that temple. He's gone. And for all that anybody understands that God, it's not just that the temple is vacant, it's that God has left us. God's not here anymore. And we've been waiting for hundreds of years to feel him again, to see him again, to experience him again, to wait for him to come back. And I think we can all, to, be, to a, a small degree, have the feeling, especially in this last year, of like how this is, we're weary. And it's just atrocity on atrocity and, and suffering upon suffering and waiting upon waiting for things that just, just isn't quite life how we want it to be. And the weariness right. of this, I don't know, I'm, I'm just, the, the, the word to the weary, but it's not simply that, so Isaiah says God has given him a well-trained tongue to know how to speak. Well, what does Jesus say? He doesn't say anything here. And throughout the course of Holy Week, he actually says relatively little, especially in the section that we actually get the reading from. Um, so his word, his speaking is much more than words, right? His riding on a donkey, all of these actions, they're prophetic words. But then in my mind, I, I kind of took it a step further. And it's not just that what he's doing is a word. He is the word. Right. So God has given me a well-trained tongue. He's the tongue. He is the word. It is God's voice. He, he, his, his whole, he embody his, I, I don't even have the words to say the theological accuracy of it. He is the word, right. which is speaking to the weary. Yes. So he, whether it's his big, profound, dramatic actions or his sleeping on a boat for Pete's sake, all of them are the word that is meant to rouse the weary because he is the word. That is what, what is meant to rouse the weary is the incarnation. Yes. Yes. It, now, so this is, this is actually where I was thinking, gosh, the disciple is the one who follows this teacher and this master. Hmm. And because I'm looking at Isaiah and, and I'm saying, okay, this is Isaiah 50. He says that the, by uh, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught. He's given me the tongue of a disciple. So I, I had to change translation because I wanted to understand. Uh, I, I think that the 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 um, that there's a there's an accuracy but a poverty. There's an accuracy but a but a poverty to what we're getting in sure. in the lectionary. Sure. Whereas if you go into the RSV, you're starting to see one who's taught a disciple. So it's basically yeah. we're saying he's given me a, a discipled tongue. A, dis, a, a tongue of the tongue of a disciple that I may know how to sustain with the word him that is weary. 
Hmm. Morning by morning, he wakens. He wakens my ear to hear as a disciple. Hmm. So, so now what would I believe is, that in Hebrew where it says wakens my ear, it's the word Shema. Shema o Israel. Yeah. Right. Which is fairly evocative, right? Very evocative. Now he says, okay, what is, what is, how is his ear being awakened? Mm. The Lord is, um, and I was not rebellious. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. So I think we turn now and we're actually hearing what Isaiah's hearing. Okay. Because Isaiah has been asked to follow after the Lord in some way. And now he's being a given vision, a vision of the teacher further on. Mm. He wake to um I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face, for the Lord God helps me. So it's this thing where all of a sudden the Lord is comforting Isaiah through his passion, kind of like what I was seeing before, where he is accompanying all who suffer. We GPS locate ourselves. He is absolutely locating Isaiah in the midst of his suffering because he is such a profound disciple and so given over to the Lord's work yeah. that he actually is getting a vision into the future of the uh, of this moment of the passion that's sustaining him so that he can say to the other, here's a word that's going to sustain you. This is actually something that it matters. It, I'll tell you what, when I share with people who are suffering the sufferings of my own life, mm. it really actually matters. Yeah. You know how you, when you're going through something, and it's it's not for a counselor, it's not for a psychologist, psychologists don't do that. But for a friend, somebody says, you know what, I'm really suffering, and you're like, tell me all about what's going on. Yeah, Let me hear it. And then, then you can say, you know what, brother? You know what, sister? Like, I've been through some stuff too. You're, we are not alien to each other. Yeah. And yeah. Jesus is showing Isaiah, you're not alien to me, and I'm going to let you in on actually the profound reality of my heart. And so I'm not going to be put to shame, just as Jesus was not put to shame. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Which is hard to see without the gift of hindsight, right? And that's what Isaiah doesn't have. Right. So Isaiah is, is caught up into this suffering moment without the Christian gift of hindsight to look back and say, oh, I get it now. Right. As is Psalm 22. Hmm. Now, Psalm 22, that's not entirely true. Actually, let me take that back. Isaiah is given to see something without fully the gift of hindsight. He's given the gift of foresight, which is actually of greater suffering. It is. Now, Psalm 22, which I believe is a Psalm of David, um, written during a profound period of suffering for him. I believe, mm. it's be I believe that it's believed <laughs> that Psalm 22 comes out of the period of David running from Saul in the wilderness where he's got to hide out in the cave, knowing he is the true king, knowing he is the one to lead Israel, but a false king is seeking after his life and trying to destroy him and kill him for it. Mm. Um, he then gets this insight again where he gets a foresight into something that will happen. His life then embodies something that has not yet taken place. And he then, through this suffering that he experiences, is able to, by the grace of God, show us forward into what Jesus will do and simultaneously give us a sort of hindsight into what that means. What, what on earth am I saying? I'm not making any sense, probably. Maybe I am. But what I mean by that is that Psalm 22 then becomes the words that Jesus prays on the cross. Yes. So when he gives over his, or right before he gives over his spirit, he prays Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned or why have you forsaken me? Eli, 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 lama sabachthani, right? Why have you abandoned me? Which many over the years have mistakenly, I think, taken to right. believe that Jesus is, this is his totality of being given over to sin and death. And Jesus is just, he's wiped. And I have no doubt that Jesus is physically wept and spiritually wept. He's given everything. But this also shows that he is in total awareness and consciousness of what's actually going on. Because one of the most popular ways of teaching for a rabbi, and of course, what is a disciple? One who follows a rabbi is taught by a rabbi. One of the ways to be taught by a rabbi is having the rabbi say a part of a passage meant to evoke the rest of it. Right. You say a part of something meant to evoke the rest. So he says, why, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And this psalm goes on talking about, I mean, in such depth. And again, 
imagine the beauty of the scriptures is that there's always an immediate or often an immediate context in the Old Testament, at least. Right. And approximate context. Approximate right? and a remote. I'm sorry. Proxim <laughs> proximate and remote. So David is really feeling this. He feels like they mock me with their parted lips. They're wagging their heads. He relied on the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he loves him. David's like, I am suffering. I am the Lord's anointed. I know my story. I know my identity. I know Samuel anointed me. And yet this is what they're saying about me. The dogs surround me. The pack of evildoers are closing in. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. He's in the desert. He is starving. He actually is feeling these things, whether consciously or not, re recognizing that he's also foretelling what the he is embodying the suffering of the Lord in a really profound way in, in his real life circumstances. He's not simply a type. And I guess what I'm what I'm so moved by is that David is not merely a type. You know, right. He he is real and in his real suffering and real trials he really is embodying something beyond himself. And so this goes on they divide my garments among them from my vesture they cast lots. I mean, you can't read through this and not see all of the elements of the passion. But what our reading from mass doesn't give us is where it goes, which is and I just want to read a couple lines of where this psalm heads to, which is after the dogs surround me, they've counted all my I can count my bones, they divide my garments. In verse 19, there is a but, but you, O Lord, be not far off. O strength, O my strength, come quickly, deliver me, deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs, rescue me from the mouth of the lions, save me from the horns of the wild ox, and I'll declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Descendants of Jacob, praise him. All of this litany of different uh, figures and groups, praise him because he did not despise or disdain the suffering of his afflicted one. He didn't hide his face from him. He listened. He shamad to his cry for help. And so, therefore, we can glorify. David wrote while in the wilderness, or maybe afterward, I experienced this. I felt this way. I was, you could count my bones. It was over. But the Lord heard me. He listened to me. He turned his face to me. And I know now that I was never actually abandoned. He didn't really forsake me, even though I really had the experience of forsakenness. And he then gives us the theology that we need to understand the cross. Right. Jesus is not forsaken. He does not think he is forsaken, I don't think. He understands the but, the turning point of Psalm 22, which is, no, but he didn't abandon me. He didn't forsake me. And so too embodied in all of our lives, we're not forsaken. We're not abandoned. And if we can see... The son of God nailed to a cross, bleeding, pouring his life out, saying, but I know I'm not despised and I know I'm not abandoned. Then we can do anything. Then we can be able to see through the sufferings of our life, hopefully by the grace of God to say, well, if he could say it up there, maybe I can say it in these sufferings of my life. Hmm. Right. Yes. Which takes us, I think, to well, you know, well, I mean, even even before we move on, yeah, yeah, please. I, like like <clears throat> this is actually the. I keep on seeing him that like he's going through all of this. Jesus is understanding David and David's discipleship is so close. Yes. It's so close that we're already <laughs> seeing him follow after Christ. Even though, Absolutely. even though like he's not able to, and this is what's the profound suffering is it's for, it's, it's foresight, not hindsight. But it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of There's both. There's a taste of hindsight even before it happened. Right. What a weird phenomenon. Yeah, like he's entering into the eternal moments. And that is the call of the Christian. Yeah. It's to be able to see the sufferings of this present moment, even if they haven't been reconciled yet, and understand that in the grace of God, all things will be reconciled. To have the gift of hindsight theologically, even before we're out of the trial, right. before we're out of the mess. Right. That's the gift of, of, of not just Palm Sunday, but all of Holy Week, right. of saying we're in it. And we're actually, as Christians, going to enter into this moment of suffering and of trial, knowing the end of the story, but also fully giving ourselves to this moment right. and doing both. And that's where, that's where he is... He's generous to us in by by saying, oh "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Yeah. Because, like my mama said to me, she said, "Son, pay attention to the song that gets stuck in your head. It has something to tell you." So, so like, so like, what happens is Jesus says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And he's getting Psalm twenty two stuck in everybody's head. <laughs> yeah, to this day, true, to this day, we say, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken?" We keep on coming back to this, but Jesus, in his generous teaching and his existential strike, at, in in the core of his being, he's saying, "Keep going." 
follow this to its natural end yeah. and praise the Lord. Yeah. He, and like, because this is not the end of the story, people. Which the beauty of this is that we know in the moment, and we're obviously connecting dots of the gospel reading because it's the whole narrative. But we know that in the moment, it doesn't seem to work because these apostles who were so excited a couple days prior of getting the animals and Jesus riding in all the stuff, they abandon him. It's not God who abandons Jesus. It's the apostles who abandon Jesus. And they all cut, cut tail and run. Cut tail and run? Turn tail and run? Whatever. Except John, of course, and the Blessed Mother. But everybody else does actually abandon. But and, this is And Mary, the wife of Clopas. But, and Mary Magdalene for that matter. Um, but the beauty of it is that we actually see, again, both foresight and hindsight here because they obviously remembered or were told and had the experience of a Jesus pray that John, John probably telling them, hey, once you guys all took off, here's what Jesus said on the cross to stick it in their heads. And then probably post um, Pentecost, once they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, they're able to look back and write the Gospels and say, oh, in the moment, I, I totally wanted to abandon Jesus. I had to run because I couldn't see it. I was too afraid. I was too scared. I was too threatened. So I ran. But now I actually can look back at myself in that moment and I can write you a narrative about what was actually happening there because now I can see outside of it. Yes. Because of what he told me in that moment that I didn't get in the moment, but now I can look back and it makes sense. Right. And now I can put it in perspective. And now the gospel writers aren't even ashamed of the fact that they turned tail and ran because even that they say that can be edifying. Even that can be God's grace to show people this is the human experience and here's what not to do. And here's how to come back when we do inevitably run away. This is how to go through it. Yeah, here's and these are the layer. These are the levels and the layers. Here is the master, the king, the the discipler, the right. the one who shows us the way, the rabbi. Yeah, and here's how he goes through it, and here's how the disciples went through it. Here's how those disciples that were close, and you can again, you can GPS locate yourself. You can say, right. you know what, like him, you know, and and regardless of that, Jesus accompanies you no matter what level you are at in this narrative. Right. And, right. and, and it's so intimate and that's why we, the, the church is going to say, I need you to put yourself into the narrative by saying the words. Yeah. And we're going to ask you to actually go to the, the, even the lowest level of these words. Yeah. We're going to ask you to go into the crowd. But this is the thing is that why? Because we ourselves are asked to accompany those who have forsaken the Lord and to draw them back in. We put ourselves always in the place of others. We are generous with the situation of everybody in our hearts. And we say in, in the same way that, you know what, what's happening with the shooting that it took, took place, we're all putting ourselves into the position of the police officer, the workers, the people who were there, the people who ran away. The, we're, and, and we do this by saying, gosh, I could have been there. You know what? I go there. Gosh, I know people who were there. Like right. we're all like actually doing the work of saying I'm going to I'm going to actually present myself in a in a special way to the trauma that this was by opening myself. Which is which is dangerous. And this is actually why what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to accompany Christ who accompanies them. This is actually one of the things, this is one of the trainings that we are meant to do within our Christian faith is that Christ accompanies every single person. And so we accompany him. And by that are allowing, are allowing Christ's graces to be present everywhere and always. Well, here's the problem. That's true. Everything you said is true. But what's so dangerous about Holy Week and so dangerous about Palm Sunday and all of this is that by the church asking us to put these particular words in our mouths, they're actually asking us to recognize that we have the potential to be like the killer. Mm. That human sin actually can lead us to that. It's not just, we're not just random spectators. We're the ones shouting, kill him, crucify him. We're being asked to meditate on the depth of the possibility of human sin that we're capable of great evil and that this killer is not some alien from a foreign planet. He's a person that probably had mental health issues. I don't know. There's some little things coming up. We don't know. But that human beings, you and I, have capacity to do horrendous things. 
And that's a dangerous kind of place to put your mind, but that's kind of what the church is asking us to do here. How far are you willing to go to to recognize the depth of what not just the people around us can do, but what we can really do and what we really do in our spiritual lives every day when we abandon God, when we make little choices in our day to hate the people around us or abandon the brother or sister in need or whatever it is that we say, I'm kind of crucifying God in my heart at this moment. I'm not allowing him to actually live in me because of these little decisions or these sins, either small or great, that I'm committing. That's what the church is actually asking us to do here, which is um, distasteful and sickening on a certain level and not a happy, warm, fuzzy feeling. Let's walk out of mass. We all feel good about ourselves. It's saying, can you put the words crucify him again and again and again in your mouth with the recognition that we have capacity for a lot of evil and God gives himself freely to us anyway? Yeah. Does that, is that fair? Yeah, it is. I, I hate it. I, I hate it too, but I, I, I feel like it needs to be no, stated. I, I know, I, I agree. Uh, and then yet, and at the same moment, what the church does is it gives us the contrast and the yearning to not be that by giving us right. um, the woman with the alabaster jar who prepares Jesus, who has this this beautiful foresight yes. of his passion in her heart. And then, you know, and then you have all, all of these other folks who are like, you know, the the ones who are going to go get the donkey and the you have all of these people, the disciples who are going to like celebrate the Last Supper with him and yeah. all of these disciples who are going to, and Jesus is like teaching them and giving them and Peter and uh, like all of these folks who are trying to respond in, in their at their best even awkwardly um <laughs> you know and and not knowing quite how to do it and like the and and like who Jesus is asking stuff of and they they bonk they fall asleep on him and they they go and like and then Judas the betrayer who has this inside of him who like who is thinks that he's doing some good, but he's just twisted. And then he realizes he didn't. And then it like, he gets so messed up and, and twisted because his judgments are so, so, so twisted. Mm -hmm. And like, and, and, and so, I, so yeah, we have these contrasting disciples who are, are at all of these different levels. And yet, like, I would long to be any one of them rather than the ones who miss it all and say, crucify him i hate i like i hate saying everybody hates saying it we should hate saying it right and i think sometimes should. we get too used to it and we're like oh this, we're doing this again this sunday right we should hate it we should be sickened and disgusted by it that's why the church asks us to do it right it's the same reason it's different it's the same reason the church asks us to go to sacramental confession there's something about articulating with your mouth not just thinking kind of silently about what we've done articulating our sins and the ways that we've fallen short of who we're supposed to be as a way of actually healing that. These words are meant to be disgusting and healing simultaneously. Mm. Recognizing, yeah. yeah, I have the capacity for great evil and I don't want to. You know, I've been reflecting. So we, we kind of skipped over the canonic hymn in Philippians, but, but we didn't at the same time because you described it. All Philippians is doing is putting a fine point on everything we've been talking about. Right. Well, because the canonic hymn comes out of saying, this is what a disciple looks like. They imitate Christ in this. And here's like, what Christ did. And here's if what If you really want to imitate it, this is what it is. This is what the reality is. Yeah. The, the complete canonic, of course, means to self-empty, <laughs> the emptying of self. Right. Um. But I was reflecting the other day, just as far as like a quick bite, because this is two giganto chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And um, the one I was reflecting on the other day, it actually came up in conversation with some folks. We were talking, I don't remember how we were talking about, we were talking about the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's one of the many examples throughout the course of this reading of people just falling short, of people blowing it, either abandoning Jesus or shouting crucify him or just falling asleep on the job. And um, the... The falling asleep in the garden is so emblematic of so much that's sort of at the heart of this and the heart of what it means to be a disciple because you you changed the trajectory of, of the podcast for me today because I wasn't really thinking about that. Mm. Um, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means to follow the teacher and to do and to imitate the teacher. But this story is a story about disciples not imitating the teacher, not following the teacher, running the other way, abandonment, 
um, words like crucify, which these aren't the apostles, but they are probably some of those who were following the teacher on Sunday, presumably, right, who were saying now these same words because all of a sudden it got hard or distasteful or I don't know if I want to be called out in that way. But then you have this scene, this very, this, this climax, it's not climactic, it's climactic in some sense of the disciples who are trying hard, like they've seen a lot of stuff going on and they've seen people turning their, like everyone's excited on Sunday and now by Thursday, I think they see the writing on the wall and they see the people are starting to turn and the Pharisees are mad and the scribes and the religious leaders, they're on the attack. And I bet the disciples are a little on edge and they're like, okay, we'll have the Passover feast and we'll share this meal and this is good. And he's washing our feet and this is really beautiful, but they've got to be on edge. You're always on edge when you feel like people are out to get you, especially when they actually are out to get you, right? So the disciples are on edge. They go out to the garden. Jesus says, he gives one instruction. He says, please stay awake. Whatever you do, he doesn't say whatever you do, but I'm not trying to make it too dramatic, but he gives them one thing. He says, just stay awake with me. And what is the one thing they cannot do? Stay awake with him. And what is the one thing Jesus does? Stays awake for them on their behalf. So what is this story ultimately about? It's about following a teacher. And it's also about falling flat on your face when you can't follow the teacher all the time. And when you're following the teacher and you fail to follow the teacher and you fail to imitate the teacher, what is the true rabbi does? He does it on your behalf. He does the work for you when we fall short, when we blow it and we can't finish the job. And I was thinking, and again, it came up in conversation about they probably stayed up for a little while and they probably fell asleep at some point, And maybe they were really struggling. I wonder if there was the moment of like, you know, when you're trying to keep your eyes open, you're working real hard, you yeah. just can't do it. I was reminded of my, my 10 year old son, uh, a while, this was like a week or two ago that I was having this conversation, but he, I had a hard day and it was just one of those days. It was rough. I was tired and he was on a development call. Like it, it, it was chaos. I was exhausted. I was in a bad mood. I was, it was just hard. And my God bless him. My son was like, dad, I want to clean the kitchen tonight. I'm going to clean it for you. And our dishwasher has been broken for a few weeks. And apparently there's a shortage of dishwashers in the United States of America, if you didn't know that. So we've been waiting for two months. So <laughs> there's no a lot way. of dishes every day. They're free really? done. Yeah, that's the thing. But anyway, so Sam was like, I, I just want to do all of it tonight. I don't want to just dry and put away. I want to do everything. And I'm like, Sam, I almost started crying. I was like, that is so kind of you. And so he did the kitchen and he probably did 70% before he just fried out. And it's, we're a family of five and there's a lot of dishes. And he just fried out at one point. And I, I thought about how he did a lot of dishes and they just, and it wasn't perfect. And there was still soap and some food particles on some. And then he just kind of cashed out and was done. But the thought of me just being like, you didn't finish. And just screaming at him or getting angry. Like you did this thing and you tried in your old 10 year old heart, literally your old 10 year old boy, you know, you did 70%. And I'm so grateful that you did. And I love you so much. And I just gave him this huge hug. And I, I tried as a father to think of what Jesus in that moment, because we all, at least I do, I want to think of Jesus. I don't want to, but I do think of Jesus as this. He's so ticked off. I can't believe you fell asleep. I can't, I asked you one thing and you fell asleep and I just can't believe it. And I can't imagine as a father, my son, he did his best. And I don't even know if it was his best. He probably could have finished the dishes, but he didn't. But he did, he did something and it just moved my heart so deeply that he did what he did and I just loved him. And it would have been nice if he didn't finish the dishes and I had to stay up a little later and it's, so be it. I finished the dishes for him. But I thought of it from the eyes of a father and I realized from the eyes of Jesus, hopefully, I pray, otherwise what is our faith all about? That he sees and he loves and he understands that you guys got tired and you probably could have stayed up if you really tried, but you didn't. And so I did it for you. So I finished the job and I love you. And I know tomorrow's going to go haywire and you're going to be thrown to the four winds tomorrow. But right now I love you and I'm glad that you tried a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it became this very beautiful moment for me of yeah. if I can do that as this frail, fall, failing father with my son, I wonder how Jesus looks at these frail attempts that we usually blow it at. But, you know, we get 70 percent there. <laughs> Well, see, you know, it's interesting is I believe because that's beautiful and I actually really appreciate exactly what you're saying. Like, because um, I and I have another mystical level that I, I see this at, which is um, it's an eternal moment. It's so powerful and so potent that Isaiah is seeing it before it happens and we're seeing it after it happens. Yeah. And that every single time we um, 
every single time we meditate and are present to this and uh, think about it and read about it and talk about it, we are there. Yeah. We actually get a chance to be present to this reality. It's a kind and, of anamnesis. Right. And yeah. so so what happens is that multiply that 2,000 mm. times with the amount of Catholics who are there, and that is one crowded place. It's <laughs> a crowded Olive Garden. That's a crowded... <laughs> <laughs> the, There's the title, title for the, the podcast. podcast. Yep, <laughs> that's a crowded I, Olive Garden, and, and and because yes, they they like bonk, yeah. you know, and and we bonk sometimes too, and we're, all we're, the time, right? Like and, <laughs> and and but yet all of those imperfect moments, and uh, Christ accomplishes what He accomplishes, and yeah. we get a chance to participate and to 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 even still to this day like the station the like the the altar of repose after after the, the holy thursday like we can go and be there and then like i've fallen asleep with it absolutely you know like i've i've I've, I've i've said like i've i've not been present in the way that i'm supposed to and then right. there are so many that have been faithful and i just look at that and i go what a mystical, wonderful, great, beautiful discipleship that we've received from the God of, of, of the God that has redeemed us and has given us foresight, hindsight, and presence in this mystery that is like mind-boggling and yeah. and gives you insight as your father, as your son is doing the dishes and showing you how this is actually the reality of how he sees us. Right. Right. Which what a what a gift. And the fact that he doesn't love the person who stays awake at the altar of repose any more than he loves the priest who fell asleep. <laughs> you know what I mean, though? Yes. Like, there's not a quantifying, lo- well, there, but I love them a little bit more than I do you, which is, again, what we always want to do. Um, and even even when we abandon him, even when the apostles abandoned him on the cross, I mean, that's more serious than falling asleep. Right. Like, they abandoned him. Right. What does he say? I'm still here. I'm here on your behalf. Even if you ran, I can even deal with that. I can right. handle it. Even the people who shouted for me to be put to death, I'm here on their behalf too. I can handle it. I'm big enough. A father, not only the father, but the father's word is big enough to absorb it. Yes. He can handle it. Yes. And that's really comforting to me. Well, so may the Lord continue to comfort you as you comfort him and the blessings of God pour out in every measure imaginable we are disciples of the lord and thank you for listening and being with us today we will see you next time okay we'll see you in holy week bye bye the word on the hill podcast is a production of the aquinas institute for catholic thought here in beautiful boulder colorado you can find us online at www.thomascenter.org a-i-c-t if you like this podcast please rate and review us on itunes or your podcast app of choice Uh, That is the way that we can grow and get the word out to more people. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.